you know, as of yesterday, it hadn't been done, I don't think. I didn't keep up with it. Maybe he did it anyway. I don't know. But to burn Qurans. And uh, I talked with some of you, and you were saying, some of you are a little confused, I think, uh, and thought that was the sim- a similar thing. It's, it was not a similar thing. Um, I don't want to get off on politics, but it's not our place to burn anyone's books as Christians. That's not our place. The Acts 19 Scripture, the people who own the books, submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and burned their own books. Because those books were the source of witchcraft, which they had been submitted to. It was a sign that these books were worth silver, more silver than anyone else in the community had, and they burned them. Why? Because they said, we don't believe that stuff anymore. We are submitted to Christ. And let me tell you, if the Muslim community comes together tomorrow and decides to burn the Quran, we should fall on our face and thank God. But we shouldn't burn them. We shouldn't burn them. And we shouldn't be proud of anybody who says they're going to burn them. We need to preach the gospel side by side with all the other religions of the world because the gospel is truth and it, whatever it is, is not. We shouldn't be scared of it. Preach it. Teach it in freedom, and let God do what God does. That's what we should be doing. That's what we should be committing our lives to. And I'm hopeful that He won't do it. Selfishly, I'm hopeful because we have men in the line of fire who will pay the price because He does it. And so, that's enough on that. Acts 19 has nothing at all whatsoever to do with what that guy was doing in Florida. Okay? Totally different thing. Paul didn't burn anybody's stuff. Anyway, I just I get overwhelmed by it because that's not what this is about. This, this book stands above them all. It doesn't need us to prop it up. It's, it is God's Word. And it will stand the test against any other book which is claiming to be God's Word. This book will stand. Just preach this book. And it will win. It will win. Uh, because our God is the God of heaven. He is the great God of heaven. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 brings us to a point in the, in the letter already. We've, we've, done, we've done the introduction, so to speak. And we've done the first two verses of Ephesians. And now we're in verse 3 and 4. And some of you jokingly say, well, can we get through? I don't know if we can get through. I'm going to work hard to get through with these two verses. The title of the sermon today is Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow. Yes, I know it's the doxology. I know that because that's what this is. It's a doxology. It's a eulogy, an Old Testament type eulogy. And we see them scattered through the Old Testament where the writer says, Bless God for his mighty works in Psalms, in, 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 uh, in Genesis, it says, bless God, the God of Shem. Bless him. And, and so we, those are short little snippets, eulogies, they're called blessings. Blessings. Alright? And they're blessings from the creature back to the creator for who he is. And that's what Paul's doing. But Paul, because he's Paul, can't write one line for eulogy, he writes 202 words in one sentence. You get a little peek into the mind of the apostle. I believe outside of Christ and Adam to be probably the most intelligent man to ever walk the face of the earth. He was bilingual to a great extent. Probably 14 languages flowed from him easily, like native tongue. That kind of genius. And he writes sentences that the rest of us struggle. If you've ever studied Paul and studied his life, you don't, let's all shake our heads, yes, you struggle to keep up with him. I mean, in the original, there's no periods, there's no breaks. 3 through 14, one sentence. 15 through 23, one sentence. It's two sentences in a chapter. I mean, I, we don't think that way. And it's not run-on sentences for you grammarians. He just, he's just overflowing with praise to God. The book of Ephesians, more than any other letter, is filled with blessing. 
The first three chapters of Ephesians and even the end in chapter six is almost all prayer. Prayer, either he's blessing God, a eulogy like 3 through 14, or he's actually telling us about his prayer of thanksgiving in verse 15 through 23. Or in chapter 3, he goes back into prayer in verses 14 through 21. And so almost there's this large part of Ephesians that's either blessing or prayer, blessing or prayer. Paul's life was before God a praise and a, and a, and a life of praise and worship and blessing. And so we have here, we're launching into the study of a, of a high and holy hymn, we might say, in verse 3 through 14. So this is a praise. This is a blessing. 202 words, I said, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a sentence that holds on to and shows us some of the deepest doctrine in all of the Scripture. If we just look at this one passage, 3 through 14, these are the deep and, 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 and glorious truths we run into in just this chapter. Election, predestination, adoption, redemption, forgiveness of sins, the revelation of God's purpose in history, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and the eternal inheritance that belongs to the saints in Christ. That's what we run into in the first sentence of the book, of the letter. I mean, it's, it's magnificent. It's glorious. And, and it is intimately important to our lives. Listen, when I, when I was uh, going through seminary, we had classmates and some professors who discouraged teaching on such topics as election because it would divide the congregation, because of a fear that the community might label you as believing in election or something. Listen. There is no doctrine which you and I need more today than the doctrine of God's providential, sovereign election. Why? Because it is the basis of our confidence in a day like today. It is the objective framework and foundation by which we build our lives so that we stand in confidence, not arrogance, and say, Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. And He is pleased with me. Why is He pleased with me? Not because of me, but because of Him and because of Christ. He is my hope. He is my salvation. That's what we need today, more than anything else. So far from shying away from or running from it, God has brought us right into a letter that's filled with it. If you don't want to talk about election, you can't teach Ephesians. You just can't, you just can't teach Ephesians because it hits you in the mouth. That's linebacker terminology. It hits you in the face. It's right before you in the very beginning. And it's purposeful. It's purposeful. Listen. Here in this chapter, here in these verses, here in these two verses this morning, we have the unique opportunity to place our confidence, our faith, our lives in the hands of the one who spun galaxies into existence with his word and breathed life into Adam and has planned intimately the, the outcome of all things. And we have, because we can join Paul in the blessing, we can base our life on it. And then whatever we get in the week to come, we can have confidence in who he is. Okay, and so we don't need to run from it. We need to dive in. So let's dive in together. The first thing I think we see here is that we praise God because of God's character. We praise God. You have your, your, uh, this is new this week, I know. Inside your, uh, worship guide, you have the two points of the sermon. Don't get giddy. I gave you the two big points. There's lots of little points, alright? But two big points. And I did that so you can take good notes. We praise God because of His character. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. That's the first four verses. 
It's easier translated for me this way. This is the way I brought it over into the English. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing spiritually in the heavenlies with Christ. According to, accordingly, excuse me, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in love. Why did I choose praise instead of blessing? Because in our vernacular, as we think, in, first of all, in the Greek, it's the same word. It's the same word. In the beginning, in verse 3, and then down when he says he has blessed us, it's the same word. But it's a different work that's happening. We cannot bless God. You understand? In the term that we think of. We can't bless God. What are we going to bless him with that he doesn't have? What, what, any answers? Can anyone think of what God might need so that we might bring it to Him? No. We praise God. It's the same idea. Blessing is the same idea. But we, when I say we praise Him, we are responding to His blessing. He has poured out on us blessing and we are returning to Him a blessing. But that blessing is in the form of a praise. A glory unto Him. And so... Praise be to God. That's the way this thing starts. That's the way it gets kicked off. And it's just getting started. We do it because of who God is. He is God. So we praise Him. Why do we praise Him? Oh, well, we could go through all of His characteristics and we'd be here to lunch or beyond. But let me just choose three that fit this subject that we're going to deal with today. First of all, we praise Him because He is all-powerful. I mentioned the verse just a minute ago. I chose an Old Testament passage to show you that this isn't a New Testament idea. Psalm 115, verse 3. When the Gentiles say, where is your God? Our response is, our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. That's all-powerful. If you're all-powerful, it means what? You can do whatever you choose to do. That's, that's the definition of being all-powerful. I'm not all-powerful. My children think I'm all-powerful. And your children used to think that too, don't they? Are you with me? I love the moments where you're disciplining your child and they say, when do you get a spanking, Daddy? I, I love those moments because it gives you the opportunity to say, well, a Daddy doesn't get a spanking. Like you get spankings. I get the correction of God. God loves you so much. He put me between you and Him right now in your life. Don't worry. You're going to graduate out of my protection. And you'll deal with God as an individual. But right now, Daddy's protecting you. God rains down on Daddy and Daddy rains down on you. My reign is much easier than His. Trust me. But... Yeah, daddy gets disciplined and he gets disciplined by God. And you know what? I don't get to say, God, that's not fair. You can't do that. You know why? Because God does what he pleases. Let that sink in for a moment. We mentioned uh, a diagnosis we received in our congregation this week that's very hurtful to us. But in that moment, if you don't know God does what he pleases, then you'll be scrambling. For an answer. You have to know it. You have to believe it. You have to have ingested it. It has to have become you. That when you lose your job, God does what He pleases. When you have a bad health day, God does what He pleases. When your child dies, God does what He pleases. And, and what He does is holy. And it is good. But He does it because He's all-powerful. We can't say, you can't do that, God. We try. It just doesn't work well. You can't do that. I, God, you don't have the right. That's not a, that's, who's going to utter that sentence? God has all rights because He is all powerful. He is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. So when we say we worship Him as God, we worship Him as all powerful. Secondly, characteristic that I would bring out is He is trustworthy. I want you to turn to this one because this is so foundational and it changes everything. Numbers 23, 19. Now, we're in Balaam's oracle in Numbers 23. 
I'll give you a little time to get there, okay? Just flip over to Genesis and then start flipping forward. You'll get there quickly. Numbers 23:19, very important passage because Balaam is speaking to Balak and he's telling him about who God is. And this is how he defines God. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man. That he should lie. Or a son of man. That he should change his mind. Has he said? And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? You say, Carlton, sometimes in the depths of my sin. Rightly, I lose confidence in salvation. I think I can't be saved. That passage should come back to your mind. This passage. Yeah, Numbers 23, 19. You know why? Because if you're His, God has spoken and He will do it. It's not dependent on you performing so that He loves you. God has said, I love you. Therefore, He cannot change that. God has spoken and He will not lie. God has done something and He won't change His mind. God is trustworthy. That's an objective truth. Titus chapter 1. I want to show you the New Testament. How does the Apostle Paul interpret? And I do think he's dealing with the, he's, he's, he's playing off of Numbers 23 in Titus chapter 1. Look what he says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, what? Who never lies. Numbers 23, 19. God never lies. So when He says, by faith alone, in Christ alone, I will save you, He is not lying. And if He saves you by faith alone, in Christ alone, you can't be lost because He can't change His mind. That's who we're worshiping today. We're worshiping because He's God. He's all-powerful. He could have crushed us like ants because we are rebels. But He loves us and He can't change His mind. And it is not a lie. So when we worship, when He says, praise be to God, this is the God He's talking about. All-powerful. Trustworthy. One more. He is gracious. He is gracious. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we read it like this. You know, in this verse, most people focus on man. See, whosoever believes in him, that's what they focus on. Wrong focus. Look back at the beginning. For God, in this way, loved the world. He's gracious. How did I get gracious out of that? Because gracious means he did something which he did not have to do. There is, again, no reason why we can stand here on the earth and say, I deserve God's love. I earned it. He owes me. No. Furthermore, if God chose not to reveal himself at all and let every human who ever walked the earth go to hell, he is just because we are rebels And that's what we deserve. But we don't serve just a just God. He is just. But we serve a gracious God who loved us so much that He gave us His Son. So when He says, praise be to God, that's what Paul's thinking. He is all-powerful. He is trustworthy. He is gracious. He's thinking a lot more things. But if we go into all of that, you'll go out before I get done. Know these three things. Meditate on these three, three, these three things. We need to know because the life that we live will be reflected by the God we know. If you know a small God who's limited by you and by circumstances, 
you will live that way frantically, with no peace, and with no hope. If your God is small, but if your God is the God of the Bible, you will live a life, though it is attacked on every side, you will live a life that is stable, that is firm, that is confident, that is, that is focused on Him. Praise the God of heaven and earth. He is God. He, we praise Him because of the fact that He is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should we emphasize this? Because I stood on my front porch Monday and was being invited to a Jehovah's Witness Bible study in my own home. That's right. They had a little book, said, would you take the book, read it? We'd like to come back for about an hour a week for a while and talk with you about it. I said, sure, I'll meet with you. Love to. I got some things I want to talk with you about. Okay, good. We're excited about that. What would you like to talk about? The Trinity? Oh, we don't, no, we don't believe that's in the Bible. Oh, I do. Let me get my Bible. No, that's okay. I don't know. I just want to, okay, I don't need my Bible. I just said, can we deal with John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Can we just deal with that one? We don't, we don't interpret it that way. I'm not talking about your interpretation. I'm talking about what it says. Well, we can see you're convinced. We'll go to the next house. No, no, no. I want you to come to Bible study. My children and my wife are standing close enough to hear I wasn't trying to be rude. Why is it important that we praise God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because if God is not God one in three, we don't have any hope. If you're not a Trinitarian, you have no hope. Why? Because only God can satisfy God. And if there's no second person of the Trinity, we have no hope. And if there's no Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in verse 13 and 14, to seal us unto the day of redemption, we will not be sealed and we will fall back into our sin and our, and die in our sin. But we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Him. Why do I talk about John 1? Because the Word is the second person of the Trinity. Notice that John said He is God. The Word is God. He is God. How can a Word be a He? Because it is the second person. The Son. Jesus Christ. That's who it is. And verse 14 tells us what? That second person of the Trinity pitched His tent, became a man, lived in the tent of flesh for us. That, that's, that's praise worthy. Praise be to God who is the Father. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise Him because He's God. We praise Him because He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise Him because He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father. Look. Don't miss it. Look in Ephesians 1.3. Bless God who is the Father of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So if He is the Father of the Son and we are belong to the Son, then He is our Father. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Jews couldn't say it. The controversy of the Lord's Prayer for a Jewish person is, they can't say our Father. They can say Abraham is our Father, and we serve the God of our Father, but they, they, they don't dare say He is our Father. And you have that privilege through Christ because He is Christ's Father and you are in Christ. He is your Father. And there's no greater Father. Hey, what have you faced this week? How bad is it? I don't know. How bad is it? You just think of it right now. The worst thing that happened to you this week. What was it? Get it in your mind. Now that it's in your mind, I want you to think this way. My Father is in heaven. 
And he does whatever he pleases. And he is my father because I'm in Christ. And if he loves Christ, he loves me. And he showed his love to me because he gave me his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that is Christ is mine. So whatever I did this week that was awful, whatever I had to endure that was that was shook me to my very core. At the end of the day, when I laid my head down and went to sleep, I could say, our father, which are in heaven. So we have something to praise, I would say, don't we? We have a man, a God man who has joined us to the God of the universe. So we might say, praise God from whom All blessings flow. And that's where I want to go next. We praise Him because of His character. Secondly, we praise God because of what He has done for us. Verse 3, part B through 4. We're into not just who God is, but what He has done for us. Who, verse 3, who, God, God has blessed us in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God is not praising us. God is pouring out blessings on us. Who God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. All spiritual blessings in the heavenlies with Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I, 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 I admit that when I see this, my heart begins to quake because I know how I live my life every day and it is not as if I have everything which is in the heavenly places in Christ. I don't live that way. When the mortgage payment comes due, and my check account, checking account is about to get small. I run and look at my savings balance to give me good hope. And what I should run to is that I have an inheritance that the bank knows nothing about. It's in heaven. I have the title deed on a house in at 252 Pebble Creek. I have that title deed. The bank is is actually the owner of my house, technically. As I haven't paid for it yet. But I have a deed that says it's mine. Okay? In the agreement I have with the bank, if I don't make my payment by the 15th of every month, I have a late charge. If I go 30 days in our economy without paying my bill, I get a phone call. About 60 days out, they want to come take my house. So as permanent as my house looks... And as good as I, as I, as thankful as I am for it, someone can repossess it right now because I just have a piece of paper and a payment book. God has not blessed us that way. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, spiritual meaning holy and good, not non-material. He has blessed us with the title deed. He has given us a title deed, a guarantee, an inheritance in Christ that cannot be repossessed. Do you understand the magnitude of that? I I don't live that way, though. I really don't. Do you live that way? I mean, He has blessed us with everything that could possibly be given to us in Christ Jesus. You could say it that way. Everything. He didn't leave anything out. You can't go to God and say, Well, God, I'm really appreciative for all you've done for me, but there was this one thing I really wanted over there. No. He gave it all to us in Christ. And what specific things did He give to us? Well, they're in this passage. I mentioned them earlier. He gave us... Election. He gave us predestination. He gave us the right to be called the children of God. Adoption. He gave us redemption. He gave us, through Christ, the forgiveness of sins. He gave us the revelation in Christ of what God is up to in this world. He gave it to us in Christ. 
He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and guaranteed to us an inheritance which never fades away and thieves cannot steal and banks cannot repossess. It's ours. It's ours. Fully paid for. Title clean. It's yours. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we only have them because we have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have them. You can't get them anywhere else. There's no back door. There's no side door. There's no climbing over the wall. You either come through the door, Jesus Christ. Go through the cross of Christ. Past the tomb which He was raised from the dead. And travel the path that leads unto righteousness or you can't have it. There's no alternative way. He has blessed us in Christ, with Christ, in the heavenly places. He has not only blessed us, in other words, today, but He has blessed us tomorrow and throughout eternity. We live in Anniston. We live in Cowan County, Jacksonville, some White Plains, some area around here. Maybe you've traveled from a long distance, and that's your home. Correctly, you could say that's your home in this life. This is where I live, but we all have a place in the heavenlies. In Christ Jesus. And we're going to see later that we're there. We're already there. It's already ours. In other words, the great thing about being blessed with every spiritual blessing with Christ is that Christ has already received the blessings. Therefore, we have already received the blessings. They're ours. There's no contingency. Maybe they will be. No, they are. Secondly, we praise Him for what He's done because God has chosen us in Christ before the beginning of the world. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I, I said it. I said it because it's in the Word of God. He chose us. Now, that may bother you. I want to park there for just a minute. First of all, if you look up the Word, which here is chose, you find something very strange. The word in the original, when you look it up, it means chose. There's no second alternative. It's chose, elected. So, if you're here today, do it as kindly as I can say, and you say, I don't believe in election then you don't believe in the Word of God. Now, I'm not being prideful. Maybe we can understand it, and maybe I need to understand it differently than I currently do. But one thing we better never say is that I don't believe in it. Because at that point, you don't believe the Word of God. There are plenty that do choose that route. But it is a non-biblical route. It is a route that God has not left open to us. Because He not only mentions it here, but if you begin in Genesis and go to Revelation, He mentions it on every page in some form or fashion. That He is sovereign is no secret if you've read any of the Bible. That He does what He pleases is no secret if you've read any of the Bible. And that He chose for Himself a bride, a people, a race, a nation, a priesthood. That's no secret. It's up front. It's center. And you got one definition. Chose. I looked it up this week. Again, because when I was studying this as a 19-year-old boy, I was real young back then. I did not want to believe that. I did not want to believe it. I called myself a Christian, but I hated that phrase. I had never seen it before. It had never been preached in my church. And when I read it, I'd gone to a Christian school. All my life. I've been in church every Sunday, almost literally. And I've never seen the word. Never heard of it. And when I was sitting on my bed and read that, I got angry. What? That has to be a misprint. I got a bad Bible. And when I started researching it, it wasn't a bad Bible. It was a bad heart. And it was at this verse that God, who spoke likeness into the dark, 
shine the light of Christ into my heart. And so when I preach this, I'm not preaching as some academician who's disconnected and who thinks, oh, it's all just words and verbs. And This is the most precious teaching of all the Bible. Because let me tell you, if you don't agree with election, what you really don't believe is that you are depraved. Your real issue is not that you think God doesn't have the right to be sovereign. You don't believe you're as bad as you are. You think there's some glimmer of goodness in you naturally. What you're rebelling against is total, absolute, inability, depravity, lostness, whatever you want to call it, sinfulness. You don't know who you are. It's not, first of all, a problem with God. And so let me tell us who we are. Romans 5 says, when Adam chose to sin, we all chose to sin with him and in him. Adam is not to be blamed for our sin. We are to be blamed for our sin. We chose with him. We are sinful. What does it mean to be sinful? To fall short of the glory of God. To come up short of what he has required. To not be good enough. To be a trespasser on God's holiness. Not only did we fall short of the glory of God, but Romans 5 tells us prior to Christ we were an enemy of God. An enemy. We were not neutral. My little one, that's six weeks, just a little over six weeks old, is not neutral. That's why I'm praying for her as I rock her every day. God, save this little one. Save her. Why? Because if he doesn't do it, she is depraved and she will die and go to hell. She has no hope outside of Christ. It doesn't matter who I am. It doesn't matter who her mother is. She is a sinner. Right now, she's a sinner. She's not going to become one one day. She is one. And right now, in the depths of who she is, she doesn't know it yet cognitively, but in her heart, she hates God. And she hates His Word already. And if He doesn't change her, she has no hope. And so that's who, if that six-week-old baby is in that condition, and you've lived 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who are you? Now, not only are you in your nature sinful, but you have acted on your sinfulness. My little one hadn't acted on her sinfulness yet. Give her another year, year and a half she will. The remote will be there. Daddy will say no. And she will say. That's rebellion. Right? It's sin. Well, she can't sin. She's 18 months old. Oh, sure she can. She eats. She sleeps. She poops. She sins. Simple formula. It's her nature. It's who she is. So when we define sin as a problem that is out there. We've already failed. And this verse makes no sense. We think, well, we're really pretty good. I'm a good person. Carlton, I don't know who. You must be talking to my neighbor. I'm, I give to the little cripple kids fund. I, I, I'm a kind person. I helped my neighbor rake their leaves last year. I hate to see people when they're sick. I hate to hear that someone has died. I'm a good person. No. You're not. The Bible says you are in rebellion against God. And so, God could then wait. You say, well, I, this what I, I don't not, I don't not believe in election, Carl. I believe in election. I believe that God, before the foundation of the world, looked down through time. And He saw that I would choose Him. And so He chose me. The problem with that theory is that if I lived 100,000 years... On this earth, if that was possible, I would not one time choose God. Ever. Never. The proof of it is that hell is still full this morning. Because in hell this morning, there is not one soul, there is not one person who says, you know what, I made a bad choice. I should have went with Jesus. I want Jesus. 
if you and I could travel in a capsule into the flames of hell that are burning and waiting to consume everyone, if you went to the devil or you went to Hitler or you went to your old lady next door who just died, not one of the three would say, I want Jesus. Oh, they would say, I don't want to be here. The devil doesn't want to be in hell. I don't want this. Okay? It's a simple plan. By faith, accept Christ alone as your Savior. No! That would be the answer. And you'd go to Hitler, he'd say the same thing. You'd go to the little old lady that was 80 and died in her sleep after giving all kinds of kindness and goodness to people, but without Christ, and she would tell you the same thing. They will never want Jesus because they cannot in their heart choose Him. They don't want Him. They don't want Him. That's the reality. So when we read a verse like this, we can deny election. We can say it's not true. Or we can try to excuse it by saying, well, God chose us because we chose Him. But there is a problem. Look at the passage. According to blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to that, because of that, because He had a desire to do that, He chose us. I forgot the third, uh, third one. I'm sorry. The third way that people try to explain around this is to say, God chose Jesus. Karl Barth, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, said, God chose Jesus. And he made it possible for anyone who was in Jesus to choose God and be saved. He elected Christ. And then corporately, he made it possible that all who wanted to believe could believe. But look what it says. Even great theologians miss little words. What does it say? He chose who? No, he chose Christ. Right? Is that what Ephesians says? He chose Christ and us through Christ. Is that what it says? No, it says he chose who? Us. Paul and all the believing Ephesians and all the believers of all time, he chose us. I do not deny corporate election. But you can't have a corporate election unless he elected individual members to be part of the corporate body. You can't have it. And so he chose us in Christ. The in him, in Christ, is important. Why? Because he did not choose us because we were better than our neighbor. He didn't choose us because he saw some glimmer of hope in us. He didn't choose us because he thought we'd be good children and we would bring him a lot of glory. He chose us in Christ. Uh, the only reason I'm elect, the only reason I, if, if I am a Christian, if you are a Christian, the only reason we are is because of Christ, not because of us. So God therefore didn't look down the halls of time and see some good thing I would do and choose me. He saw Christ and chose me in Him. He saw a sinful, rebellious one. And He said, I want that one. I want Eric. And, and if I'm going to have Eric, he must come through Christ. So He chose Eric in Christ. He hid Eric. He put Eric behind his son. And so when he looked at Eric, he saw Jesus. And he consumed his wrath with his own son. And he took his own son's glorious righteousness and laid it on Eric. And so that he is counted righteous in Christ. That is what election is. He didn't look at Dave Swinney or Carlton Weathers or Eric or any of the other of us and say they look like good old boys. I'll take them. And I don't really like those people. They're out. He looked at some from every tribe and every tongue and every race of people. Every ethnic group. He looked at some inside of every ethnic group and he brought them behind his son. And said, those are mine. Now, I want those to be mine. How will I do that? Pour out my wrath on my son. Give my, his righteousness to them. 
and accept Him into the Beloved. Into and through the Beloved. That's how He did it. And if He hadn't done it, I would be lost. You would be lost. He chose us in Christ. There's another hint that this is not about us choosing God and then God choosing us. And you already found it, didn't you? Because you're smart Bible students. When did it occur? When? Read it. The answer is there. It's open book test. What? When? Before the foundation of the world. Was any, any, were any of us there? No. Had any of us acted before the foundation of the world? No. This happened in the eternity past with God, Father, and Holy Spirit together. This act happened before the world was created. And what God is telling us here through the pen of Paul is, I didn't choose to make the world, make men, see them fall, and then save some. What I did is reversed it. I wanted a bride for my son. So I chose the bride before it even existed in reality. I chose it. And I chose it in Him. Took their sin. Put it on Him. Took His righteousness. Put it on these ones. These are mine. And then I set about creating the world. When God says He loves you, that's not a statement that started to happen one day when you believed in Him. He loved you before the foundation of the world. Everything that's ever happened in your life came from His love. Everything. My dad abandoned me when I was a kid. He abandoned me. I don't say that lightly. I didn't speak with him until I was 20 years old. I called him on the phone. And we've had two conversations since then. I've never, never had the opportunity to have a face-to-face with him. Ever. I want it bad. Not so I can tell him how awful he is, but so I can tell him who God is. I want him to know God. Listen to me. My dad left me because God loves me. It didn't happen because he's a bad God. It happened because he's a good God. When I was a child, my, I was abused sexually. I'm being very open with you. And today I see that abuse as the love of God. Why? You say, that is horrendous. How can you say that? That sounds like a child abuser. Because he knew what it took to get my wretched heart to the depths of my humanity. When I was 19 years old, I had lived 19 years trying to earn love, trying to be somebody, trying to be accepted, trying to have a relationship with the opposite sex to fulfill a need that had been created through abuse. That's what I wanted. And at that moment on the bed, I read, He chose you, Carlton, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And all I could do was praise Him for being God. That's all I could do. So, listen, you're crying yourself to sleep at night. I know some of you are. And I'm not making light of your circumstances. I'm not saying life is easy. It is hard. It is difficult. It is torturous at times. But if you're His... You are His through all of that. And all of that was an act to bring you to a point at which you would look to Him and nothing else and say, Oh God, save me. Have mercy on me. And He saved you. And so you have received the blessings of heaven. So now you ask me, would you go back, Carlton, and undo your dad leaving? No. No. I wouldn't change it. Would you go back and change the abuse, the sexual abuse? No. I wouldn't change it. Would you undo the 19 years of doing all of these things to earn God's love? No, I wouldn't change it. Why? Because it made me broken before Him so that He might save me. So that He might make me His own. Because He had before the foundation of the world chosen to do it. And if He hadn't, I would be a bitter, angry... Don't leave this place saying, Oh, Carl, no, poor beautiful girl, he's had a tough life. No. I've had a glorious life. Because I know the glorious Son of God as my Savior. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And everything He has done up to this point is to bring you to where you are today. Now, quickly we end. God's people, 
The purpose of this is that they be holy and blameless in His presence and live a life of love throughout eternity. I connect in love to... I know the ESV doesn't. I love the ESV. It's my favorite translation. They are much smarter than me and they may be right, but as I study it, in love goes with our phrase here that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, not in love He predestined. I know He did it in love, but that's not, I think, what Paul's saying. He's saying... He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, set apart, eventually blameless before Him. Positionally, we are blameless and we are holy in Him. And we will live eternity in love. And so, I move to application. Quickly, to apply. Quickly, to think. How, what does all of this mean? Let me just give you some things. We should praise God with every breath that we have. Our praise should be based on the fact that He is God. And secondly, our praise should be based on the fact that He has done the great redeeming work. That's the first application. You leave here today praising God from whom all blessings flow. Secondly, we should live every day in light of the fact that we have been given eternal heavenly blessings in Christ. Our daily life and our daily attitude should be set not by our circumstances in this earthly life, but our daily attitude and life should be set by who Christ is and what we have in Him. So when you leave, that's what this is pushing us to. Holy and blameless before Him in love. God's election, third, God's election of us to salvation should cause us to desire a holy and blameless life. It should not cause us to be prideful and arrogant. It should call us, call us and cause us to be holy and blameless. It doesn't give room to licentiousness. It calls us to a higher standard of living. That's what God says. So when you apply this to your life, God's election applies by calling you to a different life than what you would have lived in your own strength and power. Fourth, God's election should drive us, push us, cause us to establish community that is based on love. It should make us desire to have a community at Grace Fellowship based on love. We, among all the people of the world, should be the most loving people. Listen. You know that our church is not perfect. But I want to level with you. I count it a privilege to serve you. Because I see God making you into His image. I see God forming a community of love. It is not perfect. If you're visiting today, please don't leave thinking, they, they got it right. No, we're far from it, but I do see it. It's happening. More than I've ever seen it in any place in my life, I've seen God making a place about love, based on love. And I, you say, how do you see it? I see it because God is diversifying even more every day our congregation. Economically, we are a different group of people. We got folks who are at opposite ends of the earthly food chain. Of economics. Total opposites. And they sit in love with one another. We have in our midst people of different races, different ethnicities. And the world says it can't happen. But it does happen when the community is based on love, based on the gospel based on who Jesus Christ is, then no matter what creed or ethnic group you come from originally, you're now in Christ. You've been elected and moved behind the person of Jesus. So now I'm more like my brothers in other countries than I am like the person who lives next to me and doesn't know Jesus. And it's slowly starting to happen. It's not overnight. We've been here almost seven years. And it's just starting to happen but it's happening. So that shows me that God's work is being done. More than attendance, more than money, more than any of that, when people begin to group themselves around Christ and not around what they are alike, how they are alike. He's working. He's working. That is a result 
of Him choosing us in Christ so that we might be holy and blameless and live in love. And live in love. Listen, two more applications. God's election of us is the objective grounds for our full assurance of salvation. You say, I'm not sure certain of my salvation, Carl. I'm struggling. The only hope you have is that God chose you. That's the firm ground that you stand on. If He didn't choose you, and you believe you came to Him, then it is only logical that you could leave Him and be lost. Do not ever fall in the trap of thinking, well, I don't believe in election, but I believe in eternal security. The two exist together or they don't exist. Be careful what you work to deny. If you work to deny His sovereign election, you have just ripped from yourself the only hope of full assurance of salvation. Because whatever saved you can lose you. And if a a wishy-washy, hot and cold personality is what brought you to religion and to Christ, that hot and cold personality will get you out. If the liar that you are got you in because you professed something from your lips and believed it for the moment in your heart, the first storm that comes along in life, you will deny Him with your lips and leave Him in your heart and be no better than Judas. You will leave. But if, oh, if... The creator and sustainer of the universe, before he created anything, chose you and placed you in his father's hand where no man can pull you from him and nothing can separate you from his love. Then nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. Not height, not depth, not any created thing could separate us from the love of God. That's what Paul said. So to my friends who Lean towards, we can lose our salvation. I would just simply say, are you created? Yes. You haven't existed eternally. Yes, you're created. Then Paul says that you cannot separate yourself from God. Once you have Christ and He has you, it's over. And when did that happen? Back there. Before the foundation of the world. Christ had you. And you had Christ already. So you say, well, then that, then what are we doing? Let's just live our life and why share the gospel? Last point of application. The only legitimate motivation for evangelism is believing that God chose his bride before the foundation of the world. If you don't believe that, you have no true motivation. Not a godly motivation. You can't. And listen, you say, how does that work? When you share the gospel believing that God has already acted sovereignly before the world was founded to save some, then I go share the gospel with Alicia believing she, she may believe. She may be one of God's. And I share the gospel with her. And I love her and I serve her. And she doesn't believe. Does that deter me? Not if I believe in the sovereignty of God because she may just not be saved yet. She may not know she's saved yet. So I keep sharing the gospel, keep loving, keep serving. If I go motivated out of fear of someone going to hell or for any other motivation, I will be frustrated and quit. See, the biggest complaint about believing the Bible when it says God chose His people is that, well, that'll demotivate any evangelism. No. I challenge you to do this this week on your own in application of the sermon. Study the great revivals of the world. Study them. Study them. Every legitimate revival that has happened in world history was started when God moved on a group of people to believe in His sovereignty and His electing power. At that moment, those people became inflamed with the glory of God and began to share the truth of God's Word. And they were saved. No revival has happened. No true revival that I've ever found happens 
because people get afraid somebody's going to go to hell. It doesn't happen. Not true and legitimate revivals. They all start because God is known to be God. We know that we are lost and in need of God. And we know that God has done the decisive work in saving His people. And then we go and share the truth. And so the last application intentionally is share this truth with everyone. Share the gospel with everyone you work with, live with, play with, everything. Share it. Sow the seed. Go to sleep and let God do His work. Let's pray. Father, as we think and...